Well, if you would take your Bible again this week and turn to the book of Hebrews as we continue our way through this wonderful book. Hebrews chapter 9, to be specific, in verse 15. I want you to think on the word inheritance this morning for a moment. You know, that's a word that has captivated the imaginations of many and dominated the minds of others who have spent their entire lives waiting for a wealthy relative to pass away and leave them the family fortune. In some cases, people know that they're from a wealthy family and they spend their entire life anticipating one day having that family fortune at their disposal. The rest of us hope instead that somehow, unbeknownst to us, we have a long-lost relative out there who's planning secretly to leave us an untold fortune that we currently don't know exists. And while most of us will never actually realize that dream, I was reminded this week of a family that's related to my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, who inherited such a fortune. This family was quite poor by American standards. They lived in a very modest home, and they spent most of their Saturdays out shopping at garage sales, not for antiques and not for collectibles, but for legitimate personal clothing. One day, the husband of that family received a phone call from from a long-lost cousin that he had known years before but had since lost touch with, and they had a nice conversation, and the cousin at some point in the conversation mentioned that he had sadly been diagnosed with cancer. The man, of course, expressed his sadness and his sympathies uh, to hear that, and at some point later, they got off the phone. But not just a few days later, he received a call with news that his cousin had passed away. But not just that his cousin had passed away, but he had chosen this man as the sole heir of all of his possessions. And among his possessions was a bank account and of several million dollars, along with mineral rights to several active oil wells that paid out large sums of money every month. In fact, my understanding is that this man had so much money in the bank that he literally called his bank and asked them to stop paying him interest because he was tired of dealing with the taxes on the interest. So here's this man and his family, very modest circumstances, literally overnight becoming millionaires with lots of money, more money than they've ever thought of coming in each month. And the truth truth is, all of us would be happy to receive an inheritance like this, but we understand that it's probably unrealistic. But if you're a Christian who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews wants you to understand that you are now in possession of an inheritance of infinite value an inheritance that you cannot fathom the value of, an inheritance that would make even the the most lucrative human inheritance in this temporal world look like nothing. And we have the joy of studying that special inheritance which is ours in Christ this morning. We're here again in the book of Hebrews. The superiority of Christ remains the theme We're looking in this section from chapter 8 to chapter 10, dealing with Jesus' superior covenant and sacrifice, the fact that, that Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of His superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. And with that in mind, I want us to read the verses that we have covered so far in chapter 9 as a way of setting the table and the context. So we're going to read verses 1 to 14 of chapter 9, leading up to our verse this morning in verse 15. So Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was an outer tabernacle prepared or a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, 
The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, so far we've looked at three of the five segments uh, of chapter 9. We've said there are five segments as we break this out. The first two segments we looked at in the first message, verses 1 to 10. We've seen the description of the earthly tabernacle and the message of the earthly tabernacle. That message in summary form is that while that outer tabernacle stands, we need a better way to God and we need better sacrifices to get to God. That brought us then to segment number three last week, the superiority of Christ's redemption. We saw that Christ secured an eternal redemption and the author proved that to us by arguing that Christ's greater sacrifice must also produce great, greater benefits. Last week, we were reminded of the incredible truth that Christ entered into the true holy of holies, the heavenly holy of holies, once for all. And having done so, He obtained for us, His people, eternal redemption. Remember, under the old covenant, on the day of, of atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to make atonement only for the sins that had been com committed that previous year. But Christ offered not animal blood, but Himself as the sacrifice. And therefore, because His sacrifice was greater, the results were greater, meaning that our sins as those who believe in Him are forgiven not just from the past year, not even just from the, the past of our life, the days we've lived so far, but past, present, and future sins forgiven, redeemed, atoned for. This is eternal redemption. Now, that idea where we left off, leads us into verse 15, which opens up this fourth segment of chapter 9. Now, the entire segment runs from verse 15 to verse 22. And segment 4 is called the mediator of the new covenant. That's the general title. But there's, there's a lot here in these verses, and so we're, we're going to break this into a couple of messages. And today, we're just going to look at verse 15 because our understanding of verse 15 will affect how we understand the rest of this segment. But I want us to read from verse 15 down to verse 22 so you can see the entire segment as a whole. So Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it's never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, 
with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, as we think about this fourth segment, there are really three parts to this. We're only going to look at the first key point today, but I'll give them all to you. We'll have the implication the illustration and the argumentation. Implication, illustration, argumentation. But today we're just looking at the implication. And the implication of what's been said so far is this. Christ's mediation secures our inheritance. Christ's mediation secures our inheritance. Look back at verse 15. Verse 15 begins, for this reason. Now, those words are massively important. As you read the Bible and study the Bible, we, we need to be careful to pay attention to words like therefore and so that and phrases like this one, for this reason, because it, it connects what we've just studied with what we're going to study in the verses ahead. And so we have to ask ourselves, what reason does he have in mind when he says for this reason? Well, like we've just said, in verse 12, we saw that Christ entered once for all, obtaining eternal redemption. In verse 14, we're told that that eternal redemption cleansed our conscience. That is, we are justified. We're regenerated and made new because we're justified. That is declared righteous based on what Christ has done and our faith in Him. Our conscience no longer needs to have the question, are we welcomed by God? Are we accepted by God? Because the answer is yes. On the basis of the blood of Christ, for all who have repented and put their faith in Him, we are welcomed uh, to be with our Lord. And so this cleansed conscience that has come through the, the death of Christ entering into the Holy of Holies is the reason. Because Christ has done this for us, he has secured something for himself. It says, verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, this is not new information, I recognize, but hang with me. The author is doing what he often does, where he brings us back to something he said to then turn and look at it anew to gain new, deeper knowledge. We've already been introduced back in chapter 8, verse 6, to this idea that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. There he wrote, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. I told you then, but it's been a little while, that verse would become sort of the, the, the launching point into the rest of this discussion. Really what he's been doing this entire time is filling out what he said there, that Christ has become this mediator of a better covenant, and that covenant has better promises for us. And we're just going back and forth, cycling through those ideas, learning more and more about them. We've already saw that new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31. We've discussed the fact that because Christ is the mediator of this covenant, it really means two things. It means, one, that he is the, the guarantor of the covenant. That is, he secured it. He's the one that, the foundation on which it rests. But he's also the intermediary. He's the one that goes back and forth between us and the Father. He stands between us, securing the continued benefit of that covenant. Now, again, all of that is, is old information. If you've been here before, this is review. But... Here, the author now wants to move beyond that to say, with those things in mind again, think about it this way. Let me show you a different facet that perhaps you hadn't considered. And we see that because the next two little words are crucial here in our verse. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, so that. Those two words are, are just like the, the words for this reason. They ought to jump off the page at us to say, okay, he's about to tell us the, the purpose or the reason. What is it that, that this role of Christ has 
secured for us. And if you were to, if you've been through the, the teaching seminar and learned block diagramming and things like that, if you were to diagram this verse, you would see there are, there are two points of emphasis that flow out of these two words, so that. Two points of emphasis. Emphasis number one we'll call the means of his mediation. The means. Now, I want to tell you up front, this first point here, this first emphasis is really more like a parenthetical statement. The heart of what he's gonna say is in the second point of emphasis. But this one lays the foundation for what's going to come. And we see here, he says, so that since a death has taken place. Since a death has taken place. Now understand that word death is going to become a key theme for the rest of this segment. Really what he's doing is he's arguing some of the implications of the death of Christ. What is it that that secured for us? And specifically here, it's a reminder of the necessity of the death of Christ. He says, since a death has taken place, that is, it had to take place in order for these next events to be true. It's a reminder that that God planned his plan of redemption before the world began. It was always the plan of God that the son would come to die. In fact, this is so true that Peter preaches this truth in his very first gospel message on the day of Pentecost. When the people come together and say, what is this? What's happening? He preaches the gospel and he says this, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man, now listen to this, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This was God's plan from the beginning since a death has occurred. Every aspect of the plan of redemption was meticulously planned, prophesied, and fulfilled by God through Christ. So there is no redemption from sin without the sacrificial death of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in the very next phrase. So that since a death has taken place, what's happened because of this death? That death was for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Now notice again this word redemption. We talked about this word last week, and here it comes again. Redemption carries with it this idea of a debt that is owed or, or a slave in need of freedom. This is the price paid to pay that debt or to secure that freedom. This freedom then, this debt, is dealing with transgressions, that is, sins. Now we know that the death of Christ was sufficient for all sins, all the sins of his people from the beginning to the end. But remember, we're, we're looking at this comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so specifically here, he says that this redemption was for the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. He's speaking specifically now of how it is that the death of Christ paid for the sins of those who sinned under the first covenant, under the law. And this is crucial because the new covenant could not come on the scene until the transgressions and the rebellion under the first covenant was dealt with. And so what we see here is that, that God, he, because he's just, cannot say, you know, I know you messed up under the first covenant. I gave the law. It didn't go very well. Just forget about it. Redo. We're going to do something else. If you're a golfer, God doesn't give mulligans. He doesn't give mulligans for sin in general, and he certainly doesn't give mulligans for the breaking of the old covenant. It had to be dealt with. It had to be paid for in order for the new covenant to come. So in Christ, we have this simultaneous paying for the sins under the old covenant so that God could be just, and yet in his graciousness, bringing in the new covenant and all the benefits that it entails. And the death of Christ, this is key, the death of Christ was the means by which this was secured, 
redemption of sins under the old covenant and the ushering in of the new. Now that's the first point of emphasis, but as I said, really that was a parenthetical statement just to get us to the real point. What's he really driving at here? And this is emphasis number two, the result of his mediation. The means was the death of Christ, now we have the result. What did it, what did it entail? What happened because of Christ's death for his people? And it's here that we're going to camp out and spend the remainder of our time. Let's read the verse again. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, here it comes, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is the point, the primary statement that flows out of those two little words, so that. In fact, we could legitimately, just for the point of emphasis, read it this way. I'm going to read it and I'm going to skip over the parenthetical statement and go right to the point. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, you may or may not be aware, but there are some crucial three theological truths that are assumed in those statements. And I don't want to make the mistake of missing the primary point uh, by chasing the rabbit trail of those theological discussions too far, even though they're very valuable. But at the same time, if we don't understand the theology that's being assumed in these statements, then we really don't come away with the full meaning of the passage. So we're going to try to strike the balance here. For a moment, we're going we're to talk about what is this theology that is wrapped into these words and look at it together because notice what he says. He says, those who have been called will receive this inheritance. Now we can't just pass over that phrase. We've got to step back and ask ourselves, what does he mean? Who are these people? Why does he call them the called? Why does he refer to them in this way? And what we've done here is we've stumbled upon two particular theological discussions of great importance. Number one, the doctrine of election, and number two, the doctrine of what we call the effectual call to salvation, the effectual call. And again, each of these doctrines really warrant a, a series of sermons uh, in order for us to, to delve into the depths of them. But today, we only have time to discuss these things at a high level, but we need to do that in order to really understand what's happening here in this passage. But before we dive into this, let me just give a quick pastoral encouragement. When it comes to the doctrine of election, this is a discussion that often becomes heated and uncomfortable between Christians. And let me just say, if this is a doctrine that, that stirs up some, some difficult negative emotions for you personally, let me just encourage you as your pastor, take a deep breath and just let the Bible speak for itself. When it comes to issues like this, my goal always is to let the Bible speak because it doesn't matter at the end of the day what I believe. It doesn't matter at the end of the day, to be honest, what you believe. What matters always is what does the Bible say? We have one ultimate authority in the church. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he administers that authority through the revealed words of Scripture. And so we always have to come back when we have a question like this one and say, what does the Bible say? So what does the Bible say about this phrase, those who have been called? What does that mean? Well, the Bible often speaks this way to refer to believers to highlight who it is that's to receive the glory for their salvation. And the answer to that question, who receives the glory for our salvation, is always, ever, only God. God receives the glory for our salvation. When Christians in the Bible are referred to those as those who are called, 
This is a reference to the effectual call of salvation. I'm going to explain what that is in just a moment. But the reason this is so contentious, the reason that Christians sometimes butt heads over this is because the Bible speaks of two different kinds of call to salvation. The Bible gives examples of what we call the general call to salvation and examples of what we're calling the effectual call to salvation. Let me talk for a moment about this general call to salvation. It is 100% true that the Bible legitimately says, whosoever will may come. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Acts 17, verses 30 to 31 says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now to declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In addition to that, we have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which is a call for Christians to take the gospel to the ends of the world, to all nations, to every tribe, nation, and tongue. But that brings up a critical question, doesn't it? Brings up a few questions. Think about this. Why is it that when the gospel is preached to a group of people, only some of those people respond in repentance and faith and others go home hardened in their hearts? And why is it that most of us who are in Christ heard the gospel preached hundreds, if not thousands of times before we eventually came to saving faith? What was the difference between all those other times that we heard the gospel preached and that one time that we heard the gospel and something changed. In fact, everything changed. What's the difference between those things? Well, the Bible answers that question by explaining that there are two kinds of calls to salvation. The general call of salvation goes out legitimately to all men and all men are responsible to respond to that call and guilty if they don't. But the Bible also goes on to reveal that only those who are effectually called by God through the gospel and regenerated, that is given new spiritual life through the preaching of the gospel, only they will then respond in repentance and faith. Let me just give you some definitions here for those whose brains work that way, this may be helpful. This is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, their definition of effectual call. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. By now, if you've been here for a while, you know my favorite theological dictionaries written by Alan Cairns, and Alan Cairns speaks of it this way that's very helpful. He says, the effectual call does all that the general call does and more. Addressed exclusively to God's elect, it affects what it commands. That is, we call it effectual because in that call, God cause it, causes it to have the effect that he's demanding. It affects what it commands, and here's how, by regenerating the spiritually dead sinner, enlightening his mind, renewing his will, and giving him the gifts of repentance and faith. Yes, repentance and faith must happen. No one will come to saving faith without repent or to salvation without repentance and faith. But the Bible speaks even of these as gifts, the gift of repentance and the gift of saving faith. Now again, I fully understand that what I'm saying, if this is new to you, may feel very uncomfortable, perhaps even offensive if this is the first time you've heard these things. Perhaps you've been turned off to these ideas because someone in your life, a friend or a family member or a neighbor, has treated you sinfully in arguing about these things. And if that's the case, I'm very sorry for that. That shouldn't have happened. We have to be careful, those of us who 
know and love these truths to also demonstrate the character of Christ in talking about these truths. But again, I'm encouraging you to put all that aside for a moment and again ask the question, what does the Bible say? And so I'm gonna step back for a moment and I'm just gonna read to you several passages that outline the difference in this general call and this effectual call. And then having understood this, we'll bring it back into Hebrews and understand the impact of what the author is saying. The first passage I wanna read to you is from Matthew 22, uh, verses nine to 14. And what we have here is a parable that Jesus taught about the wedding feast and the the guests that were invited to that wedding feast. And, and, And he makes a distinction here between the general call, the called in this case is the general call, and what he calls, not, not me, he calls the chosen. He says here, Matthew 22, 9 to 14, go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. He says, invite them all. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both good and evil, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here it comes, for many are called, but few are chosen. Second Peter 1.3 seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now we're moving into the effectual call. This is God calling us unto salvation. Peter says the same thing later in the same chapter, 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Here he he links election, God's choice, with this effectual call. Make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. This is the effectual call that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two more passages, 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then one of my favorite passages in all of scripture in John chapter 10, as Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, listen to these words carefully. They're questioning Jesus here in context about whether or not he is the Messiah, and he's, he's showing them that the answer is yes. But Jesus answered them, I told you, that is, I told you who I am, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now listen to verse 26, very interesting. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now notice the ordering of the words. He does not say but you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He says, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And what's the distinction of his sheep? Here's the effectual call written in beautiful language. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now what I want you to see is that the Scriptures routinely, in passage after passage, draw together these ideas of election and salvation and calling, at times using some of these words even interchangeably. 
And all of that stands in the background of this one little phrase here in Hebrews 9.15. And that's why I thought it was important to go on that little journey because this is essentially shorthand for those wonderful, huge doctrines when he says that it is those who have been called that will receive this promise, eternal inheritance. It's a reminder that we are saved by grace because God him, himself first acted in our hearts to regenerate us and make us new. It is true, every person who is saved must respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, but here we see that response is an enabled response as the, the Lord regenerates us so that we are then able to respond. You know, just as a side note, on occasion, uh, several people have asked me, why do you present the gospel in each one of your messages if you believe in the doctrine of election? Isn't God just going to save who he's going to save? What's the point of you then sharing the gospel? Well, I hope now you understand the answer to that is twofold. One, we share the gospel because God's commanded that the gospel be preached to the ends of the earth. And he's not told us to preach the gospel only to the elect. Charles Spurgeon has a famous quote. He's, someone asked him, why do you preach the gospel to all? And he said, well, if you, can, if you can pull up someone's shirt and show me an E stamped on their back, if they're elect, then I'll only preach to them. But until then, I'm just going to preach it to everybody. His point was, God's called us to preach the gospel. We let God determine what he does with that gospel in whom and when he does those things. But we also preach the gospel because we understand that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that no one will come to saving faith unless they hear the gospel and repent and believe. And so we preach it to all who will listen, to all who will hear, and we leave the saving part to God and His grace. This is why we share the gospel. Now, I've only scratched the surface, truly, of that doctrine. But it helps us understand even a little bit more deeply the special nature of this phrase, those who are called. And honestly, this is a title, Christian, that should bring extreme joy and humility to our hearts. Because what it means is that you and I are the beneficiaries of the death of Christ, not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves. You and I are sinners who have earned nothing but the wrath of God and yet motivated, the Bible says, only by his own grace, only by his own mercy, he sought us out and he set his love on us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the sad thing is that these truths have for, for far too long been a source of division among believers when what we ought to be doing is linking arms as we bow our faces in awe and reverence to God that he would love us in this way. Who is this God? All these false gods, the imaginations of men, these fickle gods who have only limited power over land or sea or sun or wind. Give me a God who made it all. Give me a God who's not made by men, but who made mankind. This is our God, that he would love me when I deserve nothing from him. This is God. This is the character of your God, Christian. A God whose grace goes beyond your wildest imaginations. A God whose love is deeper and far more valuable than the fickle songs that are sung on the radio that make the, the love of God sound like love between a girl and, and a boy in a teenage relationship. This is eternal love that cannot be earned, that is bestowed on his people simply because it moved him by his grace to do it. These are amazing truths. That's what it means when he says to those who are called. Is it not God's prerogative to choose how he dispenses his own grace and mercy and love? Do we as Americans not fight ardently to be able to do with freedom what we want with our possessions and with our resources? Then why would we deny God the same liberty Far from being a doctrine that should cause offense, this 
glorious doctrine should cause us to stand in awe and wonder at our God. And yet it gets even better because it's not just that we're called those who are called. What is it he's given to us who are called? Verse 15, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For every true Christian who's been redeemed by the grace of God through the preaching of the gospel, there is this promise, he says, of an eternal inheritance. Our reception of this inheritance is guaranteed now by the death of Christ, the mediator of this new covenant. Because Christ has died for us, we can know for certain that we will receive this inheritance. Indeed, in part, we've already received this inheritance. And the word eternal here takes our minds back to the word eternal in our passage last week, eternal redemption and eternal inheritance. They go together. The great unfathomable inheritance that every believer has received is eternal salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. All throughout Scripture, the the gift of salvation and this adoption as God's children is referred to as an eternal inheritance. Look at places like Acts 26, verses 15 and 18. This is Paul describing what happened to him on the road to Damascus when he was called by Christ and saved. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet For this purpose I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 to 14. In him also we've obtained an inheritance. What is that inheritance? How has it come to be? Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And then finally, we see our inheritance as salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Christian, are you, are you hearing these things? Do you understand the wonders of what God has done for you in Christ? If you're in Christ this morning, it means all that we've already said, that God in His grace has set His love on you and brought you to salvation through the death of His Son. But it also means that having made you new and giving you this eternal redemption, He's given you an eternal inheritance the contents of which are are difficult, perhaps impossible to fully understand. When we say that salvation is the inheritance, I want you to understand some of the things, I can't even list all the things, but some of the things that that inheritance includes. If you're in Christ, it means that you're not only forgiven, which would have been infinitely enough, it means that you are adopted as a son or daughter of God, It means that you have a real citizenship in his eternal kingdom. It means that he has promised to sanctify you in this temporal life to make you more and more progressively holy over time until he brings you to glory. And he's promised to give you, imagine this, eternal rewards 
because of your obedience that he brought to be within you. And then he promised that one day he will glorify you, giving you a, a new body that is perfect, that can be in glory forever without sin. He's granted you in Christ eternal access to him in which you'll have real relationship and real fellowship with him. He's granted that one day on the basis of what Christ has done, you will worship God in his real presence, seeing him face to face, and you will live a real meaningful life, not just floating on clouds, but a real meaningful life in, in which you will be with all the saints from all the, the epochs of history, along with the holy angels forever and ever and ever with the Lord. Now that is an inheritance, is it not? There is no earthly inheritance that compares to this inheritance that God says is given to his children. And if you're a Christian, you know it's yours because the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within you. And as we read in Ephesians, it acts like a seal of that inheritance. It's, we know a down payment, a deposit has been made so that we know that, that we will receive all of it one day when he either returns for us or brings us to be with himself. And again, all of this ties back to the fact that his death is the basis for all of this, that is how it's come to be ours. How our hearts should rejoice at these things. But how often we hear such truths with a yawn, still self-consumed, still wallowing in our circumstances, still acting like we have no power over sin. You remember the couple I told you about at the beginning of the message that unexpectedly received that massive inheritance? You know the craziest part about that story is, is not that they received the inheritance, but I'm told that it actually changed very little about their practical life. Though they were no longer poor, they could still be found most Saturdays rummaging through garage sales looking for knickknacks and clothes. They lived in poverty so long, they didn't know how to live any other way. Now, I know that that may in one sense sound endearing because they didn't let the money go to their head. And I'm, I'm not saying if you have a lot of money and, and you live very, very below your means, that's fine. That's a great choice to make if you desire to make that. But if you are a recipient of this eternal inheritance of salvation, it is not okay to remain the same. It is not okay to continue living as if you have no hope and no joy and no victory over sin. It is antithetical to this inheritance. Christian, the author of Hebrews is reminding you and me that in Christ, everything has changed for us, everything. Oh, we may see the same physical face in the mirror growing older each day as we wake up, but we should not see the same heart any longer. We've been reconciled to God, adopted as his children, filled with his Holy Spirit. And that should cause us to live lives that are filled with joy in Christ, impassioned for obedience to Christ, committed to the church of Christ, and emboldened to preach the gospel of Christ. Let me ask you very, very clearly and personally, how has the eternal inheritance of salvation changed you? How has it changed your life? When the people in your home, in your office, in this church bump into you, do they smell the aroma of Christ? They sense the, the character of Christ in your words and in your actions. This is an eternal inheritance that should mark our temporal lives. And maybe you're a true believer here this morning, but the truth is you're, you're walking through some difficult and dark circumstances. And you've allowed those circumstances to, to steal your attention and to steal your affections. And the result has been a joylessness and a losing the battle with sin. The author of Hebrews gently and lovingly calls you this morning, lift your eyes again to Christ. Look again to Christ and what he's done for you. Maybe you hear this morning and the truth is you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and, 
and your life is marked by sin and you have no affection for Christ or the things of God, understand the call of this passage to you is to humble yourself, recognizing your sin, that you deserve the wrath of God, but God has made a way for you in His Son to be reconciled to Him that through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, he's, he has paid for your sins if you will repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. This is the call of the gospel to you, to humble yourself today and turn to Christ. But for those of us in Christ, as we draw this to a close, I just wanna call you to consider your inheritance for a few moments. Consider your inheritance in Christ. First, I want you to consider the cost of your inheritance. Consider the cost. The author reminds us that it's because of the death of Christ that redemption is ours. We can't ever get over the fact that the creator and sustainer of the universe took on flesh and then offered that life for us. Our minds should be daily consumed and, and honestly blown by these things. His blood was shed to pay your debt, and it should be marveled at by us. But also consider the content of your inheritance. I'm going to encourage you to do this individually and in your small groups this week, to think on the, the content of your inheritance. Think of the scope of it, and I'm, I'm going to put a list on the screen. This is not an exhaustive list. It would be impossible to put an exhaustive list, but these are some of the things, we've, some we've already mentioned, of, of the benefits of the inheritance that we have in Christ. Forgiveness of sin, the clothing of Christ's righteousness, restored fellowship with God, eternal life, citizenship in His kingdom, adoption as His children, baptism and filling with the Holy Spirit, union with Christ, rewards for obedience, in this life, illumination to God's Word, understand God's Word, membership in the church, universal in Christ, ongoing sanctification, future glorification, and the list goes on of the wonders of this inheritance. But Christian, take the time to think on these things. Christ has purchased this inheritance for us, His children. What love the Lord has lavished on us, as, as 1 John 3 says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when He appears, listen to this, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. What great love He's lavished on us. And then thirdly, finally, consider how this inheritance should affect your temporal life. Ask yourself honestly, is your life marked by these things? Does it show up in your love for Christ, in your pursuit of obedience to Christ? Does it even show up in your countenance? I love how the psalmist says in Psalm 43 that that God lifts his countenance. As he turns his mind to God, God literally lifts his countenance as he thinks on truth. Does it affect even the look on your face when you dwell on who Christ is and what he's done for you? May God help us to live lives that accurately testify to the power and the wonder of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is our prayer God, that we would be overwhelmed by these truths, that we would never grow tired of them, but that our lives would be propelled and continually enriched as we look deeper and deeper into your word and discover the deeper we look, the more there is to find. Help us, God, to be affected by these things. Continue to mold us to the image of Christ, we pray. It's in his name, amen.